Hey, welcome back to uh, Talking MMT. I'm still uh, reading from uh, Jefferson Mills by Jeffrey Dalton. I'm on page 118. And that's bond very much. If the government expects to run a fiscal deficit of $200 billion, the Treasury Department will arrange an auction for that amount. Before each auction, the Treasury officials decide the auction date, how big the auction will be, the face value of securities, and which maturity uh, to offer, or maturities uh, to offer. As part of this $200 billion uh, auction, officials might offer a block of 10-year treasuries with face value of 1000 each. When the auction opens, each primary dealer bids for a share of the total allotment. One of them might signal a willingness to buy a certain number of bonds, but only if they pay out of $20 per year. Another primary dealer might ask for one for $18, still another might submit a bid seeking $22 per year. Each bid carries an implied rate of return. In this example, primary dealers are seeking 2%, uh, 1.8%, and 2.2% respectively. If the primary dealer seeking $20 wins a piece of the auction, the Federal Reserve will charge them the appropriate number of bank reserves and credit them with treasury bonds that will pay out 2% interest in each of the next 10 years. After 10 years, each of these bonds will have paid out $200 of interest income. Primary dealers are required to bid at reasonable rates, but are at reasonable rates, but they don't have to submit identical bids. If they think two percent is too low, they can try to get a higher yield by submitting a weaker bid. However, weaker bids reduce the likelihood of winning and the winning the auction. There's an old trick that will help you understand the relationship between bond yields and interest rates. And bond prices. Using your thumbs, uh, give a thumbs up for strong demand from investors. A strong bids mean bond prices go up. Go thumbs up. There is an, an inverse relationship between bond prices and bond yields. So a thumbs up for higher bond prices implies a thumbs up for interest rates. It's cheaper to borrow when primary dealers indicate a willingness to buy at low interest rates. When dealers submit weaker bids, it means they're asking for higher returns. If the weakness is widespread, the treasury departments may end up paying somewhat more than anticipated when the auction was announced. In practice, treasury auctions are always oversubscribed, meaning there are that there are always more bids than there are securities to go around. As former Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, Craig Newman wrote to her, there is always more demand for treasuries than can be allowed allocated from a limited supply of new issues in each auction. The winners in auctions can get auctions get to place the funds in the safe, safest, most liquid form of instrument here is for the there is for US dollars. The losers are stuck keeping some of their funds in banks with bank risk, since demand always tends to exceed supply.
committing a relatively weak bid means you're likely to walk away empty-handed. The most uh, enthusiastic bidders get to swap some of their reserve balances for U.S. Treasuries. To separate the winners from the losers, the government ranks the bids from the highest to the lowest. The outright stro strongest bid, that is, the lowest interest rate, always wins. The next allotment goes to the next high, uh, highest bidder, and so on down the line until the entire amount is sold. This might sound like the vulnerable fund market imagine in the crowding out story. It's not. The primary dealer market is a real-world market established by the federal government for the purpose of dealing exclusively in newly issued government securities. In other words, the government created the primary dealer market for the sole purpose of placing U.S. Treasuries in private and private hands as part of its fiscal operations. Uncle Sam doesn't enter the market in competition with, with other borrowers. On the contrary, it's the two dozen primary dealers, lenders, who, create, who compete with another with one another to win a piece of the auction. Every auction involves coordination between the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve. This means that, that even large, unanticipated fiscal deficits never pose any kind of financial or financial problem. That's because the Fed backstops the primary dealers and dealers. Backstopping basically means that if there's ever any hiccup in the process, the Fed makes sure the primary dealers have all the funding they require to make it profitable for them to place reasonable bids for the entire allotment. With these arrangements in place, it's clear that interest rates on government bonds are policy choice and not something imposed on the federal government by lenders. So what is the relationship between deficits and interest rates? In one respect, there is an, an indisputable answer. An indisputable answer. Deficits push the overall interest rates down. In the world without bond sales or some other deficit or defensive action by the central bank, deficits will drive the short-term interest rate in uh, rates to zero. That's because deficit spending builds the bank's banking system with excess reserves and a huge increase in the supply of reserves will push the federal fund rates to zero. If the central bank doesn't want to accept the zero rate, then it must do something to move the rate into positive territory. Historically, that was pre-2008, it did this by performing uh, open market operations, selling U.S. Treasuries and draining reserve bank balance until the interest rate rose to the Fed the Fed hits, hits its interest rate target by uh, proclamation. If it wants to adjust rates, it simply announces a new target and uh, voila. The interest rate is now set at the new higher or lower level. The point is that without some explicit form of intervention, fiscal deficits will naturally drive the short-term interest rate to zero. What about other interest rates. Being a primary dealer is sort of like owning uh, the goose that laid the golden egg. You're guaranteed a profit simply for occupying a special place in the monetary apparatus. It facilitated and facilitates the treasury's fiscal operations. It's a privilege 
Um, it's, it's a privileged position that no primary dealer wants to jeopardize. To remain in good standing, all they have to do is present reasonable bids that win them their share at Treasury at each auction. Reasonable is a key word. It means that dealers need to submit bids that come in very close to current interest rates, which are themselves largely governed by Federal Reserve policy. So while primary dealers formally submit bids that express their desire uh, rate of return, the interest rate they must ultimately accept is a largely uh, is largely beyond their control. This becomes even more obvious when you look around the world and realize that roughly one-third of the global government bond market trades at negative or normal uh, normal nominal excuse me nominal rates of interest that's because the bank of china of japan uh, the european bank central bank sweden's bricks and bricks band bank and the national bank of denmark and the swiss bank national bank have all set the short term rates, interest rates below zero. Selling bonds to private investors gives the impression uh, or illusion that the government is dependent on savers for financing financing, and that think, uh, financial markets can force the government to borrow on terms set by private lenders. That's not how it works in practice. A currency issuing government doesn't need to borrow its own currency from anyone uh, in order to spend, or even if it does borrow, it can exert a substantial influence over the interest it pays on those securities. Primary uh, primary dealers can signal a desire for higher rates, but the Fed can always manage rates lower if it chooses to do so. There is a popular saying among savvy investors, don't fight the Fed. If the Fed is determined to bring rates down, it's best to prepare for a falling falling interest rates. Investors who bet against a determined central bank are virtually guaranteed to suffer financial losses. One of the most high-profile or bad trades were carried out by an investor named Kyle Bass. Bass felt certain that the Japanese government debt had become unstable, so he bet against it by shorting J uh, JGBs. When investors short government bonds, they are betting the price of the bonds is going to go down. Price comes down. Uh, price comes down. When the yield or the interest rate comes up, comes up and is going to go up, Bass and others like him lost huge sums of money with the trade with this trading strategy. Shorting J, uh, JGBs became known as the widowmaker trade because few investors survived the resulting losses. In spite of what most economists say there's simply no preordained pre relationship between fiscal deficit and interest rates. If the central bank is committed to holding rates in place or managing them lower, then fiscal deficits can't force them to raise rise as the conventional crowding out story imagines. A little history will prove will prove the point. From 1942 until 1947, the Federal Reserve, at the behest of the Treasury Department, actively managed the government's borrowing costs. Even as spending to fight with uh, fight World War II drove the federal deficit to more than 25% of GDP in 1943, interest rates trend, uh, trended lower. That's because the Fed paid with 
Tuesday bill at a 0.3.5% and held the rate on 25-year bonds at 2.5% uh, as MMT economists all around the way put it. The government can borrow uh, issue bonds to the public at any interest rate the central bank chooses to enforce. It is relatively easy for the central bank to take the interest rate on a short-term government debt instrument by standing ready to purchase it at a fixed price in unlimited quantities. This is precisely what the Fed did in the United States until 1951, providing banks with an interest-earning alternative to access reserves by adding very low rates of interest. The Treasury Fed important, uh, Accord of 1951 ended the Fed's official commitment to managing rates on behalf of the Treasury, but it did not assert uh, its power to do so. Indeed, the Federal Reserve retains the ability to move rates lower even if deficits soar. It's a reality that should be obvious to any casual observer of Fed policy over the last decade. When the bottom fell out of the U.S. economy in 2008, the budget deficit rocketed to more than 10% of GDP. As deficits climbed, the Federal Reserve cut the overnight rate to zero and held it there for seven straight years. In addition, the Fed conducted three rounds of quantitative easing, buying U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, which allowed the Fed to push long-term interest rates down as well. Anyone who tells you that fiscal deficits must force interest rates higher has forgotten their World War II history and ignored recent experience, and not just in the United States. Since 2016, Japan's central bank has been explicitly targeting its yield curve. That means the BOJ isn't just controlling the overnight interest rates as the Fed does in the U.S., but also effectively setting long-term rates as well. The, the practice is known as yield curve control because it literally involves controlling the yield on 10-year government bonds. Today, the BOJ is committed to holding the 10-year bond rate at around 0%. To do that, the central bank simply buys bonds in, in whatever quantity is necessary to prevent yield from rising above zero. It's a bit akin to quantitative easing in that lower interest rates are the objective. However, yield curve control is a stronger form of commitment since the quantity of bonds the BOJ will buy in any given time period is not determined ahead of time. Yield curve control is about committing to an interest rate price targeted rather than committing to purchase. A certain amount of quantity uh, bonds, the BOJ's policy clearly demonstrates that the central bank can set both short-term and long-term interest rates even as government borrowing rises by ex uh, exercising its power as some currency issuer that always prevents the kind of interest rate pressure imagined in the loanable funds story. Not every country has these powers. As Holweiler explains, the implications for economic policy are paradigm shifting for monetary sovereignty or sovereignty. To put it simply, the crowd-out story doesn't work in countries that borrow in their own sovereign currencies. For example, the United States, Japan, the United Kingdom, and other monetary sovereigns, sovereigns uh, the interest rate on the national debt is a policy vari variable. 
As currency issuers, they dealt the mints and borrowed their own currency in a uh, order to spend. Bond sales are entirely voluntary, and the interest rates are paid on any bonds that the government chooses to offer is always a policy choice. That's not true of countries that lack monetary sovereignty. Countries like Greece and Italy, along with other 17 members of the Eurozone, gave up their sovereign currency in order to use the Euro. Since they can't issue the Euro, member uh, governments must cover fiscal deficits by selling bonds. That means finding investment investors who are willing to give up Euros in exchange for government debt. The problem is that lending to the, these countries became especially risky once they started promising to pay bondholders the currency that they no longer they could no longer issue themselves. This became um, painfully clear in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis as the global recession pushed the budgets of Greece and other Eurozone countries deeply into deficits. To finance their deficits, each country had to seek funding in the marketplace, not entirely unlike that of managing a crowding out story. Government has had no choice but to borrow in the private financial markets, and they had to, do, to pay whatever the market demanded to secure the funding they needed. Investors were rightly worried about lending to governments that could no longer guarantee repayments. To compensate for the, the added risk they were taking, the financial markets demanded higher and higher interest rates before long a full-blown debt crisis unfolded. In Greece, the poster child for the crisis interest rates on 10-year government bonds skyrocketed from 4.5% in September 2008 to nearly 30% by uh, February 2012, eventually the currency used uh, issuer, the European Central Bank, came to the rescue and interest rates moved sharply lower. Well, that'll do it for today's episode. And join me tomorrow as I continue to read from The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. And once again, I will be starting from 125, the uh, beginning portion of this. And so thank you for joining me. Uh, please subscribe to this uh, podcast with 99 cents a month or go to my, uh, my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Capital Green, Capital Party, uh, and uh, Capital Socialist News Channel. Uh, both news and, and channel both have capital uh, capitals in the, in the beginning of them. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, peace out for now. And... Um, Subscribe and support. Thank you and peace out for now.